Welcome to our third episode of This Human Life, a podcast dedicated to telling good stories from history. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Stories from the past that tell us something about who we are as people with lofty aspirations, yet who sometimes sail too close to the rocks. But instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, We are coming to you from the History Department of the United States Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We are coming with stories to tell, and we hope you will listen. For our third episode, we still have in the studio Lieutenant Commander Andy Cox, Associate Professor Thomas Burgess, and Associate Professor Matthew Janique of the United States Naval Academy History Department. And today we are continuing with the life of the American adventurer Walter Murray Gibson. In our previous episode, Gibson established himself as a major land baron on the island of Lanai, one of Hawaii's eight islands. He is now in his fifties and bored with the life of a wealthy rancher. He still longed to realise his life's ambition, which was to set himself up as some sort of tropical king. Thomas, can you carry the story on? So in the early 1870s, Gibson moved to Honolulu to launch a career in politics. Though an outsider, he had two aces up his sleeve. He was fluent in Hawaiian and was a Hawaiian citizen. He had renounced his American citizenship. He started his own weekly newspaper published in both English and Hawaiian. He hammered away at the theme of Hawaii for the Hawaiians. He opposed any agreement with the United States that called for the cession of Pearl Harbor. Such a move, he wrote, would be the first step towards annexation and the loss of sovereignty. Though the native Hawaiian population had declined due to disease and infertility to about 50,000, it still commanded a solid voting majority. By proclaiming Hawaii for the Hawaiians, Gibson antagonized the American planters and businessmen who paid taxes and who felt that ought to translate into political influence. As very often the children and grandchildren of Protestant missionaries who came to Hawaii decades before, they felt they understood what was best for the Hawaiian people. And so they regarded Gibson as a renegade opportunist who, in order to acquire power, was willing to inflame racial tensions. Just as bad, they resented his willingness to spend their tax dollars to bolster up the Hawaiian monarchy and to give the island kingdom all the accoutrements of a modern state respected as an equal among the Western powers. Known as the Merry Monarch, King David Kalakau was 14 years younger than Gibson, handsome and educated. He shared with Gibson a burning desire to usher in a golden age in which Hawaiians replenished their numbers, experienced a cultural renaissance, and established their primacy among the Polynesian peoples of the Pacific. In 1881, the king set out on a world tour becoming the first reigning monarch to circumnavigate the globe. The journey redoubled his desire to enjoy all the perks and powers of kingship. Gibson was more than happy to accommodate him. As an elected member of the Legislative Assembly, he was always among the first to call for money for triumphant statues and a new royal palace. The king entrusted Gibson to arrange his belated yet lavish coronation, Attended by foreign diplomats and thousands of spectators, the ceremony was replete with a jeweled crown, royal scepter, and a new national anthem 
co-written by Gibson. The festivities lasted for days and included balls, horse races, a regatta, and fireworks. Shockingly, it also featured late-night hula dancing. In gratitude, King Kalakal elevated Gibson to, to the position of premier. For a period of time in the 1880s, Gibson served simultaneously as premier, minister of foreign affairs, attorney general, and minister of the interior. As a sign of his confidence in the future, Gibson bought an imposing mansion in downtown Honolulu, just opposite the newly completed royal palace. Every morning he walked the short distance to work, confident that he had the king's trust, and pushed aside the American expats, who always looked down upon him as a rogue opportunist. Hawaii for the Hawaiians. I kind of agree with the planters in their skepticism of him. I admit I was surprised to hear he gave up his American citizenship, and even though he's standing up to the American businessmen on behalf of the Hawaiians, I wonder if Gibson is doing this more to protect his own holdings against the eventual American annexation and taxation than out of any benevolence to the Hawaiians. It doesn't mean he isn't genuine about it. He probably really doesn't want the U.S. to control Hawaii at all. But aligned aims and allied aims are not the same thing, and Gibson has proven to be an opportunist. And yet again, Gibson manages to insert himself next to powerful, wealthy people and gain their trust. Yet again, he talks his way into power and wealth for himself. He's now doing this on behalf of a monarch, allegedly, but he's always worked to be close to money and power, even after every fall he's experienced. It seems to be a drive for him. Yeah, I would comment on that this way, Andy, by saying that to become powerful or have to have influence in Hawaii at that time, he had to stand for election in an electorate that was still largely Hawaiian. And he won re-election time and time again. So there was this... Um, popularity and common embrace of this message that he endorsed, Hawaii for the Hawaiians, and that was his ticket to political power. The thing that I wonder about is whether Gibson's changing or not, because in previous iterations of this ability to insert himself, he's always kind of put himself first. He's been the site or the, the place where, where authority is vested. Now he's going along, he's using the Hawaiian monarchy to try and assert himself in a different way. And I wonder if he's, is he getting older or is this just a, a, the same old Gibson in new clothes? Um, he always seems to be a gambler and an opportunist, but he also seems to be quite reactive rather than proactive. He's looking at the situation and he's trying to work out how do I get the best out of this? Yeah, it may be age is catching up with him. He's now in his 50s, and he's probably thinking, I don't want to get on a ship and travel off to Sumatra once again and try and stir up rebe rebellion among the Sumatran princes. What do I have here? What can I do here in Hawaii? Um, I speak Hawaiian. I, I know the people. I know uh, the setting. Um, and I, th I, think, I think also that he understood the popular psychology of the time, which was that if he could exalt his king, then the people themselves, the Hawaiians themselves, would also feel similarly exalted. They would feel that their, his glory was their glory and, and the monarchy was a symbol of their people, 
uh, and their sovereignty, and he probably, Gibson understood this, and he felt that if he could exalt the king, he could exalt the people by extension. We should also probably note that American movement into Hawaii is, what, 50 years old by this point. Some of the first planters arrive in the 1830s, uh, and by the 1840s, the British had already occupied the islands for five months uh, before withdrawing. Um, the, the, the planters are already starting to push their way into Hawaiian politics. Um, so we're, we're dealing with a really unstable position here. It's a, it's a crossroads, isn't it? It's a transition period. No one knows what's going to happen next. And we're back now. Thomas, where does Gibson go from here? Great question, Matthew. Well, according to one American observer, uh, Gibson was a tall, thin old gentleman of 60 with white hair and beard, a mild cold blue eye and a fine patrician nose. He is an unquestionably eminent looking veteran of smooth address, silky manners and a somewhat fascinating mode of speech, wise as a serpent, but hardly as harmless as a dove. The novelist Robert Louis Stevenson, a frequent visitor to Hawaii, noted that Gibson was always careful, quote, to consult the character and prejudices of the king, who was filled with visionary schemes for the protection and development of the Polynesian race. Gibson fell in step with him. It is even thought he may have shared in his illusions or inspired them. The king sought to revive Hawaiian traditions like the hula dance that a generation of Protestant missionaries had denounced as heathen. He ordered the recording and publication of the Kumulipo, or Polynesian Book of Genesis, which included a creation story and a list of 800 generations of Hawaiian rulers, down to King Kalakau himself. To raise money, the state legalized and then taxed the opium trade and the sale of liquor to native Hawaiians moves that infuriated most American expats who felt the kingdom was losing its moral compass. At the same time, Gibson asked the Catholic Church to send a team of nuns to manage Honolulu's leper hospital. This was how Sister Marianne came into his life and stole his aging heart. Marianne was in her 40s, dedicated to her work and unknowingly the subject of many desperate entries in Gibson's diary. I am a lonely old man, he wrote, afflicted with a painful yearning for this pure, true, and noble character. Knowing she could never give him more than respect and polite affection, he lamented that, I need a companionship she cannot give me. Nevertheless, bone thin and increasingly afflicted by uncontrollable coughing spasms, the romantic embers still burned bright. Every day, he contrived to visit the leper hospital and then afterwards recorded every emotional nuance of their chaste encounters. The only time he became somewhat brazen was when he gave Marianne a golden ring with the letters W and M engraved on the exterior and connected by a heart symbol. To Gibson's bitter disappointment, the ring did not alter their relationship. 
and to make matters worse, he found himself entangled in an even less satisfying and far more scandalous affair. Flora St. Clair was an attractive 27-year-old widow and book agent. Seeking to interest well-off people around Honolulu in her catalog, she made frequent house calls. In his diary, Gibson tersely recorded receiving her as well as several other meetings. From these episodes, Flora came to believe the two were engaged. When Gibson denied it, she went to the newspapers. She hired a lawyer and filed suit for damages suffered as a result of a broken heart. Furious with all the public gossip, Gibson referred to Flora as a miserable schemer and devilish woman. As Gibson celebrated his 65th birthday in grand style with over a thousand guests, his coughing fits were getting worse and he was facing mounting political opposition. American expats were convinced if Gibson got his way, they would all be fleeced and bankrupted by his runaway spending on projects they felt were meant only to indulge the vanities of the king. And so they formed a secret society, the Hawaiian League, dedicated to getting rid of Gibson and, if necessary, ousting the king he served. So I think my, my ears pricked up here at the mention of Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, here's an admiral character. Um, maybe in contrast to Gibson, and I'm not just saying that because Robert Louis Stevenson was Scottish. Now, he's obviously famous for books like Treasure Island and Kidnapped and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but he was also a frequent traveler to the Pacific. Um, he died in Samoa in 1894, and he becomes increasingly concerned with European and Western interference within Polynesian societies. Uh, and what Stevenson does is he writes letters to British newspapers detailing the exploitation was going on. And he actually had some success in, in getting some imperial officials recalled for their behaviours. What I'm saying, or what I, I, I think is important to note, is Gibson's not the only person out here. But he is doing things a little differently. And I think that's, that's an interesting question. Yeah, and I think Robert Louis Stevenson would be a great future podcast. He has an amazing yeah. life story. He was a brilliant author and observer who uh, becomes untethered from his home country. He's a person of fragile health, ends up in the South Pacific uh, because he deals with, I think it's bronchitis or tuberculosis, and, and is just an acute observer of local conditions. And more importantly, he's Scottish. He's Scottish, <laughs> yes. And my wife would echo that sentiment, who's also Scottish. So, Let it be known, if you're Scottish, you're automatically five extra points to make our list, apparently. <laughs> what I found interesting in this turn of the story, particularly this, this whole turn right here, is now it's not Gibson the businessman or the prophet, it's the king's advisor, Gibson the man about town, Gibson uh, the antagonist and probably the envy of the American expats in Hawaii. His close association with the king now makes me think of, uh, of other characters like Thomas Cromwell to King Henry VIII, although I'm not sure that the Hawaiian nobility had similar feelings towards Gibson as the English did to Cromwell. Uh, we'll see, I guess. Gibson does seem to enjoy dancing on this knife's edge where risk and reward have very sheer consequences for him. Um, 
And the other character you had just introduced, Flora St. Clair, very interesting. The player has been played, perhaps? Yes, he has been played. Uh, and I love the name, Flora St. Clair. It, it only adds to the cinematic character of Gibson's life. I mean, she sounds like she's straight from central casting as some sort of seductress um, tormentor for the poor old Gibson. That's certainly how he seemed to put her. Definitely so, yeah. Well, this was a scandal for Gibson, and but the only scandal that ever emerges in his life of a sexual nature. I mean, most of the American owned newspapers in Honolulu were hostile to him for most of his career, and they tried to, to dig up any dirt they possibly could against him, but it was only Flora St. Clair that really hit the newspapers in this respect. So which makes his, I think, his love interest in the, for the Catholic nun uh, especially poignant, because I think he honestly did uh, feel something very deep uh, towards, this, uh, towards this woman and was left kind of as a schoolboy just to go back to his diary every night and express his heartfelt desires. And we're back for the final part of the incredible life of Walter Murray Gibson. Okay, so ever since he was a young man, Gibson nurtured the dream of creating an island empire of some kind. Now he imagined a confederation of all the Polynesian peoples with the king at its head and himself at his side. His first step to making this a reality was to issue a Hawaiian version of the Monroe Doctrine, in which Hawaii pledged its protection to all the islands of the Pacific. Unfortunately, the Western powers considered this nothing more than a minor irritation. Almost no one bothered to respond. Then Gibson sent John Bush to Samoa as envoy extraordinaire and minister plenipotentiary with the mandate to negotiate with the warring Samoan chiefs the formation of a confederation. If all went well, Bush was to proceed on to Tonga and then the Cook Islands. Bush was an avid drinker who lubricated his negotiations with ample amounts of gin. Nevertheless, he managed to persuade at least one Samoan chief to sign on to the idea. Believing Hawaii needed a navy to cement its status as a Pacific power and to impress the Samoan chiefs, Gibson arranged for the purchase of a British merchant ship that was refurbished and equipped with six small cannon and two machine guns. The crew of the Kamaloa consisted mostly of teenage boys drafted from Honolulu's reform school. Arriving in the Samoan port of Apia, the Kamaloa instantly aroused the suspicions of the Germans, who coveted the islands for themselves. In a drunken and mutinous brawl, the Kamaloa crew nearly blew up the ship's powder magazine. As the ship toured the Samoan islands, showing the Hawaiian flag, and seeking to win local chiefs over with gin and musical performances, the Germans let Gibson know just how unhappy they were with his meddling. Threatening war, they forced him to recall the Kamaloa. When news reached Honolulu of these inglorious episodes, the American expat community became convinced of the need for a coup. Not only had the king sanctioned such a costly and, and embarrassing attempted at empire, a Chinese businessman paid him $71,000 for control of the opium trade. This wouldn't have raised any eyebrows except the king accepted a second 
even larger bribe and then refused to pay back the first one. Coming so quickly on the heels of this scandal, the news from Samoa persuaded the Hawaiian League to put their plans in motion. Weeks of incessant attacks by American-owned newspapers called for the overthrow of the monarchy. Finally, in June of 1887, the Hawaiian League convened a mass meeting. When the king's guard melted away, nothing stood in the way of a coup. To save his throne, the king ordered his entire cabinet to resign. This seems to have merely emboldened the plotters. They took to the streets, informing the king they were only doing so to ensure his protection. They put Gibson under house arrest, and after a sleepless night, marched both him and his son-in-law off at Bayonet Point through downtown Honolulu to a warehouse on the wharf. As Gibson stared up at the noose that was meant to hang him until he was dead, his daughter Tallulah pushed her way through the crowd and begged the lynch mob to spare the lives of her father and husband. Her pleas fell on deaf ears. Finally, and perhaps through the intervention of the British consul, the plotters were convinced to stand down. Instead of hanging Gibson, they forced marched him back into house arrest. In the days that followed, they forced the king to sign at bayonet point a new constitution that stripped him of most of his powers. It also disenfranchised most native Hawaiians by making the right to vote contingent on property qualifications. Either because the leaders of the coup forced him into exile or because of his failing health, in July of the same year, the, the dispirited and despised Gibson said his last goodbyes and boarded a ship bound for San Francisco. Physically frail and subject to frequent coughing spasms, Gibson checked into St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco. The doctors discovered tuberculosis. He spent the rest of the year convalescing and composing a history of Hawaii that would put his enemies to shame. He believed they only hated him because of their greed and because he was a resolute defender of native Hawaiians and their beloved monarchy. On his better days, Gibson toured the city and plotted his political comeback. But then, in January of 1888, he came down with pneumonia and within a couple weeks passed away. Reportedly, his last word was Hawaii. Gibson's body was embalmed and put on a ship for Hawaii. 150 native Hawaiians pulled the hearse carrying his coffin, draped in the Hawaiian flag, through the streets of Honolulu. Thousands of mourners streamed past to view him one last time. Many were struck by Gibson's appearance. His white beard and full mane of white hair were now set against a face that the embalming fluid had darkened to a coal-black color. It's in this section we see the push to make an empire real for Gibson. Emissaries and declarations, allies, a navy, foreign entanglements, a scandal with political implications. Gibson never quite seems to know when he's pushed too far beyond his own means of influence or control, and the answer for all his adventures so far seems to be he's always doing it. 
Yeah, the other thing I really like about this story is how it just speaks to this transnational moment in the 19th century where you have things like mass communication, you have the ability to raise money and influence people, but you haven't yet got the formal structures of the nation state in many of these uh, quasi-colonial environments. And so Gibson himself is able to, to, to move into these areas and, and adapt himself to the context in which he finds himself. He's, he's also an ambiguity in and, of his, in and of himself. He's both an imperialist who deals in racist tropes, but he's also somebody who seems to believe, at least in part, that he's doing what is best for the Hawaiian people. And... It's this complexity and this ambiguity that really captures my interest in Gibson's story. Yeah, and just to second that, this is what also drew my my attention to Gibson's story because it's so relevant to our current moment, you know, the desire to protect and in doing so to gain power did not die with Walter Gibson. It very much lives on in the present day. You know, picking up on your comment about ambiguity, Matt, the the coup of the businessmen and expats against Gibson and the king and later Hawaiian royalty is pretty well documented, though hearing it from Gibson's angle, especially when he's facing down the lynch mob, is new for me. Um, his confrontation with the noose in the warehouse was a real stark image, but it still doesn't, for me, resolve the ambiguity of Gibson's intentions for Hawaii and the Hawaiians. Like we've already talked about, he certainly thinks of himself as a hero and a guardian for Hawaii from Western influence, much like Robert Louis Stevenson that you mentioned earlier. And that self-image is certainly something I can I, I have to consider with the imperial ambiguity in mind. I admit through this whole story, I've been interested but pretty skeptical of Gibson's altruism. But I'm interested to know more about how the native Hawaiians viewed him then and now, given their feelings about U.S. annexation and the antagonism of the business community. Yeah, that's a great question, Andy. There, and there's no reason for us to doubt the sincerity of those who mourned Gibson's passing um, when his body was returned to Honolulu after his death in San Francisco. Thousands came out for um, his funeral um, and... Thousands probably saw him as someone who was wanting, wanting to be at least their protector, um, challenging Westerners' right to rule the world. And that, I think, also leads us back to this whole theme of ambiguity, because in trying to protect these people, in trying to establish this confederation of the Polynesian peoples of the Pacific, he eventually brought down the monarchy in Hawaii. These grandiose ambitions were way too expansive for the limited means at the kingdom's disposal. And it, it is what triggered his downfall and that of the monarchy in Hawaii. Context and contingency mean so much to the narrative. Like That's, that's really what, what, what's getting me here. We can maybe view Gibson in a quasi-positive light in some respects, because of what subsequently happens with U.S. intervention in Hawaii. At the same time, as you just said, Thomas, he's the one that actually brings it on. He's ultimately the one that brings on the intervention of, of the planters and the, and the deposition of the monarchy. 
His plans once again take a disastrous turn. We saw this in the Dutch East Indies where he ends up in a, in a dungeon um, for years. Although that, that time, all that he was get, getting him doing was getting himself into trouble. <laughs> right now he's, he's bringing down an entire people's sovereignty. Yeah. I still can't believe he almost talked us into a war with the Dutch over that. <laughs> I have a question I'd like to ask you guys what you think. I'm, and that's some, returning to something I thought of in episode one when we first started talking about Gibson is that looking at listening to Gibson's life, did we learn more about him or did we learn more about the 19th century American society and culture? One thing that Gibson taught me is he's he's this example of US imperialism happening much earlier than the normal 1890s period we typically think about, you know, with the annexation of the Philippines and war against Spain and things like that. He really broadens that window. What do you guys think? Is it is this story more about Gibson, or does it does it tell us more about America? Well, it does say a lot about Americans in Hawaii uh, who are frankly annexationist for this entire period that we've been talking about, and he's opposed to those annexationist policies. So it shows that there is a debate within American society as to what extent we ought to conquer and annex and so forth. Remember when the Kingdom of Hawaii was originally sort of delivered up to the United States for annexation, it was Grover Cleveland in the White House who said, no, uh, we're not going to annex this, this kingdom. And so it, was, it wasn't until I think McKinley, his successor, uh, that Hawaii was annexed. So there was a debate within American society as to the morality of annexation, conquest, et cetera, imperialism. My sense is that I think you raise a really important point about American interventionism in the world occurring much earlier than 1898. And I think we, we really have to acknowledge that and understand that. I mean, this is, at the same time that this is going on, you have the first efforts to open up Japan as early as, what, the, the 1840s. Um, the, I mean, obviously... Perry is in the 1850s, but uh, the, the earlier expedition, um, I, I think, is in the 1840s. But um, you also have things like the Monroe Doctrine that we talked about. Um, you have these filibusters um, like William Walker going down and attempting to secure uh, additional territory in Central and South America. Um, I certainly learned an awful lot about Walker, but I think I also learned an awful lot about the visions of global interactions that Americans are starting to think about in the 19th century, that are starting to reach for, um, in a way that many European nations are at the same time. Yeah, global interactions and global power. And I think that Gibson is somewhat unique in that he's, yes, in the mold of William Walker, but he's also conceiving himself as a prophet. He's like a filibuster on a religious scale, which is a whole different sphere of exceptionality. You know, one, one other thing I would point out, you two reminded me of is, yeah, this is a much more globalized story than I expected out of 19th century America as well. Like the first half of the 19th century uh, America. He's traveling all over the world on railroads and steamships. And um, it's... We usually associate that with 
with the latter half, you know, but it's very much Gibson's entire life. There's a reason we teach global history at the Naval Academy. We teach, obviously, naval history, but the next thing we teach is global history for precisely that reason. Because, you know, as I'm always saying to midshipmen, there is an interaction. You know, changes in the world are driven by interactions. Events are not precipitated by people sitting around a table deciding, hey, you know what, today I think we're going to annex Hawaii. Um, they're, they're precipitated by people moving into new areas, new interactions, new experiences that have to be understood on a global scale. Without that, events in the 19th century don't really make much sense. And thus concludes the life of Walter Gibson. Please tune into future episodes as we bring you more stories from the past that tell us something about this human life, who we are as creatures of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. <laughs>